Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim, he's Alex, and we've got some Rivian news from the test fleet. Yep, that's right. The Rivian is now out of the fleet. Uh, We ended up selling it. Now we're just down to the Lightning and the EV6. It was a tough choice between the Rivian and Lightning as to which one needed to go first. We had some practicalities because the title had already arrived for the Rivian, so it was easier to sell it at this point. But also... uh, The Rivian, I I feel very conflicted over. I want to like it more than I do, I think, is part of the problem. The amount of power it uses just idle turned out to be a bigger issue for me than I had expected because I live off-grid. And so consuming an extra three to four kilowatt hours just isn't good for us. Um, Also, minor quibbles that probably are not a problem for other people, but were an issue for me that sort of built up. So no Apple CarPlay, no Android Auto. The air vents are a little silly. You can only control them in the instrument cluster, but they don't work as well as the ones in the Tesla that you can control in the instrument cluster. They're actually formatted like a traditional air vent with veins that you can see. You just can't touch them and adjust them the way you want. That's kind of a a funky thing. The, The key and phone interaction doesn't work quite as well as I would like. Um, And the towing behavior wasn't quite where I wanted it to be. Uh, Rivian is adjusting some things in software, and there's a lot that's promised by Rivian that that seems rational that they should be able to achieve, like the semi-autonomous hands-off-the-wheel driving system is supposed to be coming at some point later. But a lot of these things are just not ready in the software yet. Now, a lot of folks are going to have questions about the things that can't be fixed over the air because this is a first-generation product from a Mm -hmm. brand-new automaker. And... We won't find out what it's like at 10, 20, 30,000 miles, but off the bat, what was your impression of the way it was put together? Were there any glitches, anything that stood out as uh, basically teething problems for Rivian as a whole? The only thing that really stuck out to me uh, as far as uh, a, a major design flaw or just a teething problem would be the power tonneau cover, which as I understand, there's now a second generation power tonneau cover that has addressed the problems. It's kind of an interesting mechanism where it it accordion folds the the top into a little cubby right behind the rear window, but it it doesn't have motors that are terribly strong, and so it gets stuck or it'll bind now and then. And there's the unanswered question of what happens to leaves that are on the top that get sucked into the mechanism. Do they ever make it out? We don't know. They just they disappear. They don't come back out. Who knows what happens to them? other than that, my only major complaints were about things that, um, that again, may or may not be a problem depending on what you're planning on doing with the truck. If you're a regular person, a, a regular tower, a person that tows regularly, then there are going to be some issues, I think. The position of the backup camera is awkward for trailer use. Uh, the stability control system and trash control system is a little bit funky with a trailer connected. Things like the lane centering system, lane departure warning, blind spot monitoring, adaptive cruise control, they all turn off when a trailer is connected. And I was curious about that. I assumed maybe it was because they were doing blind spot monitoring with cameras, very much like Tesla does. But we actually found out that they use radar sensors. So that's probably a software thing that could be fixed later to enable those functions to stay on. They may just not have had time to adjust the behavior of all of these electronic uh, assistance systems for when there is a trailer connected. So there's a possibility those could be fixed with software, but things like the location of the hitch, the location of the camera, those obviously cannot be fixed in software.
Now, being a smaller platform, I've always wondered how it tows in a crosswind and whether that was a problem given the size of the trailers that you that you move around. Were you ever able to get a sense of what it's like to highway trailer with a large, physically prominent mm -hmm. crosswind magnet of a trailer? Not really a problem because the Rivian's pretty heavy. Uh, the Rivian is about 7,000 pounds, and that really accounts for a lot. Uh, unless you have a lot of a lot of crazy trailer action going on, there's not a lot going on with the tow vehicle. Also, it has trailer sway control and stability control profiles on the truck itself. So most modern heavier tow vehicles honestly feel quite stable in those situations with the addition of those systems on there. Uh, the uh, That said, of course, if you're towing a 35-foot RV that is shaped like an enormous mailbox being towed by a Hot Wheels, I mean, then you're going to get some, you know, unusual motions in the wind, right? With pretty much everything. Even a one-ton truck is going to have a problem. But the, the design of the Rivian, very low center of gravity really helps out a lot. Heavy curb weight helps out a lot, too. So in a lot of situations, towing feels a bit more like a three-quarter ton truck in that respect because the tow vehicle is just so massive compared with what you're towing. Now, for folks who maybe haven't kept up on EV Buyer's Guide, there were some issues with the maintaining rate of the, the vehicle's systems. It burned through an extraordinary number of kilowatt hours in just a few days. Yeah. You mentioned that earlier as one of the things you like least about it. Just for folks who haven't seen those videos, could you briefly summarize what that meant? Because it shocked me. Right, so the Rivian will consume uh, about 2 to 3% of its battery per day doing nothing. Tesla owners are probably not too surprised by this because Tesla's used to be at this similar rate of, of loss per day. Tesla's now got it down to 1 to 2% depending on the model that we're talking about and the conditions that we're talking about. The Rivian is excessive, though, in comparison because a Tesla losing 1% a day on a Model Y, that's not great, but we're talking about 1% of a 70 kilowatt hour battery, right? In the Rivian, we're talking about 3% of a 130 kilowatt hour battery. So it's a much bigger problem on the Rivian side as far as energy consumption goes. So you're certainly going to be spending more on your Rivian having it do nothing than in a wide variety of other vehicles. And in comparison, two weeks left alone, the Ford F-150 Lightning lost 0%. Kia EV6, 0%. Um, in true actual range, both the EV6 and the Lightning lost maybe about one or two miles. So there was still some consumption, but so low it was meaningless. Meanwhile, on the Rivian, it lost about 30% of its battery over that time frame. And that's, that's exceptional. Okay, market outlook. This is going to be a relatively early pre-owned appearance by a relatively new Rivian. Have you had a chance to test the waters and see what you might be able to get relative to the price you paid? Yeah, this is an interesting topic. Uh, you know, we're recording this before the sale is finalized, but at this point, it looks like the Rivian will go for one hundred ten thousand um, dollars. Our out out the door cost uh, was seventy six thousand plus nine percent sales tax plus the destination charge, which is a thousand something on the Rivian, plus the license and registration, plus insurance, plus interest on our business line of credit, which is where the cash for the Rivian came from in the first place. Um, so 
All of that put together, we probably were out the door for about $90,000 in the Rivians, what it cost us so far to do all this outside of the electricity. So it could be about a $20,000 profit, I suppose, somewhere around there. Of course, it's a business-owned vehicle, so we're going to have to pay business taxes on that. It's just going to be revenue to the, to the business. And of course, there was a price increase. So relative to what Alex paid, if you're buying that Rivian, that same spec Rivian now, you're going to pay more. And there might be changes to the tax credit because I, I don't know if, is the Rivian still qualified for the full 7,500 it was? Before it will not. Uh, it does at the moment, if you are lucky enough to have pre-order pricing on your Rivian and its total is is in the right window, uh, Actually, let me correct that. The 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 eighty thousand dollar price cap does not apply till January. So okay. at the moment, yes, it would get the seventy five hundred dollar tax credit, but come January first, twenty twenty three, income testing and the price cap are going to apply both. So the top end trims probably not going to get the tax credit based on their price, and if you are in an upper income bracket, you won't get a tax credit on anything because you might not qualify for your tax situation. And this is important because if you're thinking, oh my God, look at the profit he made. I'm getting a Rivian. I'm buying that thing. Bring a trailer five minutes later. It's not necessarily going to work out because there was a huge price increase. You're going to get a substantially smaller or maybe mm -hmm. even non-existent tax credit. And frankly, if you were to take delivery of this vehicle in the first part of next year, there's going to be a lot more of them on the market and the market mm -hmm. conditions might be different. So reliable sources, we want to like warn you against this idea that Rivian is the new Bitcoin. So don't treat it yeah. that way. It's a little bit difficult to tell. Uh, Hummer EV and F-150 Lightning have both done extremely well on the limited secondary market that we've seen so far. Um, sites like Cars and Bids, they will actually, they have a waiting list for people that want to sell Rivians on cars and bids because they want to deliberately not try and saturate the market. So we looked into that. We were told there's a, we're interested, but there's a wait list because, and it's going to be about six weeks long or so. So Rivian, they want to dribble out the Rivian slowly to try and maintain a, a particular pricing structure on that. Um, but you will find ads. We just listed ours on Auto Trader and Car, car Gurus. Uh, for sale, we just decided to go a more traditional method there for them. Uh, and we deliberately listed it $18,000 below the, the cheapest one that was on there. The other, other than this one at 110, uh, there was one uh, listed for 128 and the others were higher than that. Um, because, you know, I felt that was ridiculous uh, to try and list it for 128, but maybe that's just crazy. Um, this is the first time we've ever made money on a car that we have ever bought for video purposes. I mean, you know, Nexo, Lightning, or sorry, Nexo, Mach-E, Model 3, RAV4 Hybrid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've lost money on all of them. So when you net this out, I, I don't feel too, too bad because on average, we still have lost money with every car we do a video series on. Yeah, remember, remember <laughs> kids out there, you can make a small fortune in cars if you start with a large fortune. Yeah, and you know we still have employees to pay, and uh, and hopefully this will go to help us give them a raise this year, because so, <laughs> uh, YouTube revenue has not been overly stable with the changes in the economy this year. <laughs> Hell yeah, Brian! Boom, he's gonna be rolling high. All right. Speaking of money, it now costs money to enable features your car may already have. In the 90s, we got used to the idea of OnStar. In the mm -hmm. 2000s, we got used to the idea of satellite radio. But as of July yep. this year, BMW is talking about subscriptions for enhanced headlights, heated seats, and driver's aids that your car already has. 
Where did this come from? Where's it going? Where's it come from? Where's it going? Where uh, it comes from? I think a desire to try and streamline build process. So the actual cost of some of these features is fairly low for the feature itself, but the cost of complexity in the build process, in inventory, etc., is probably higher than the actual item cost itself. A heated seat, pretty damn cheap. But the cost of having two different button modules, one with the button, one without, or a seat designed with the tray for the heating mat in and out and having warranty parts, et cetera, that actually could be higher than the actual cost of that heat seating element. So I have a unpopular take on this, which is bring it on. I want more of this. (laughs) Okay. Because if I have the ability to pay less for my car initially, and then I decide I, I move to Maine, and then I need a heated seat, I can turn my heated seat on. But if I did that and I didn't have that, then I would just have a cold butt and that would make me sad. Um, I'm kind of okay for most of these. Do you want to unlock more performance via a software update that I pay for? Bring it on too. I'm fine with that one as well. In an interesting world where EVs can have features turned on more easily if they are designed like a Rivian and a Tesla, where it's a big rolling computer and one computer is doing all the various doodads, this could be a way for some EVs to get under the price caps that we're going to see on new trucks and EVs, uh, new trucks, SUVs, and vans that are EVs and sedans. So if Tesla can sell you a $55,000 Model 3 that is just under that price point, and then you can turn on extra performance via a software update, all of a sudden you have found a loophole in the EV purchase price cap. And I really do think that Tesla is where this started. You know, I asked, where did it start? Where is it going? I believe it started with the notion that you could buy a car with one battery and unlock a big Mm -hmm. battery by paying more money, that you could buy a car that had one level of autonomy and you could unlock a higher level autonomy by paying more money. I'm going to be a little bit of a contrarian here and say it's true the incentive structure of the recently passed legislation might make these subscription services more viable to get under the threshold for qualification. Um, But I also think that, as with all things subject to inflation, if you don't get a feature up front, it could cost more down the road. Mm -hmm. So. Oh, it will, for sure. <laughs> yeah. With, and even though the damn thing came with the car and the car has not changed a lick since you bought it, I can easily see something like <laughs> remote start. And, and that I'm not making that up. Remote mm-hmm. start from BMW or Super Cruise from GM. They're talking about making Super Cruise subscription based on the Lyric. And I can easily yeah. see the same system that you already paid for and own becoming more expensive year by year or month well, by we month. Well, we should clarify that, that Super Cruise has always been subscription-based, mind you. Um, their trial period was just a little on the long side. So now we're kind of seeing that pricing really exist. Same thing with Blue Cruise. Blue Cruise is subscription-based. Um, we've seen subscription-based nav systems for a while. This is kind of a similar theme here. So all of the latest Toyota and Lexus systems, they come with either a one-year or a three-year subscription for navigation if you get that on your vehicle. If you're a lower trim level, you may not have any subscription trial period at all, but you have the ability to add it if you want it. Um, But you're always going to be paying for it. And Audi's MMI system with the really schnazzy disco dash that has the Google satellite imagery, if you don't pay your Google your Google satellite imagery subscription fee, basically through through Audi, uh, then that turns off, and you actually have quite a plain looking instrument cluster. 
it's going to become well first of all i think there's horrendous potential to game the system here if if all of this really is going to be targeted towards ev incentives provided by the government then i can mm -hmm. see horrendous levels of abuse where you pay forty five thousand mm -hmm. dollars per car and then you sign a separate contract at the same dealer for fifteen thousand dollars worth of subscription autonomy heated seats remote start enhanced headlights satellite <laughs> radio you know it's possible it, yeah you're not wrong it's it's definitely possible i think that more likely we will see it in a in a gentler fashion where where maybe we we, we pay fifty thousand dollars for the car and then a, a solid twenty percent choose to unlock the extra forty percent range that you could get by unlocking it but it, it would strangely provide benefit for the person that actually does get that locked battery. Because if you have 100 kilowatt hours available to you and you are locked out of 40 of them and you're only using 60 kilowatt hours of the battery, charge that puppy up to quote unquote 100% all the time. It won't matter because you're really going to keep your battery in good condition. You're never going to use it. Um, so that's kind of an interesting twist there. And I am going to be more interested to see if software in these vehicles gets to the point where I don't unlock it permanently, but I pay Tesla 50 bucks for a weekend because now I want that 300 miles of range and regularly I don't. So at the moment I have 200 miles range. I pay some sort of weird subscription where I'm allowed to unlock it a certain number of times or something like that. I mean, the world is the oyster or the world is their oyster here with the software because they can make these, these lockings and unlockings instantaneous. They've all got cell modems. Uh, they've all got software that can be tweaked in, in exactly that kind of way. Uh, I'm actually surprised we haven't seen that up till now. So I think you're going to see two things that are very interesting to legislate. legislators. They're going to have an interest in this weird idea that you could pay 60000 bucks at one dealer in one sitting and get credit for a $45,000 car or something like yep. that. I also think there's going to be a lot of questions about how safety agencies, whether government or funded by the insurance industry, test and rate cars when things like enhanced headlights and autonomy features become subscription based. How do you test the car and how do you rate the car if the features are conditional? Yeah, we haven't seen anybody attempt safety features or headlight features by subscription, but it's only a matter of time until someone gives it a whirl. Uh, yeah, do you want your headlights to keep steering? Five bucks a month. Do you want the uh, the matrix functionality so you can leave your high beams on all the time? That's another five bucks a month. Plus the $5 for your nav and the $5 for your blue cruise and your $5 for your Sirius XM and you know all that together, you could be at a new car payment monthly. <laughs> well, BMW has announced, maybe they'll be the first, that a new high luxury, high beam assist. Basically, if you remember the Autronic Eye from mm -hmm. Cadillacs in the 50s, it was a non-functional gimmick that supposedly <laughs> dipped your high beams when other cars were coming. It, all it wound up doing was dipping the cars as you drove past streetlights. Um, but you know, you're going to be able to buy this from, from BMW. And at least in places like New Zealand and Britain and Germany, they're talking about making this optional very, very soon. So they're going to roll it out overseas and then bring stuff like this to the US. But once you start changing the output of headlights and the car's ability to drive itself and your ability to see the road, then everyone from the Department of Transportation to Consumer Reports has to figure out how you rate these cars and what, yeah. what can be considered the car and what can be considered like an option because cars tested with and without emergency safety braking, uh, with and without various optional airbag systems 
uh, they do change the outcomes of these tests. Yeah. It's going to I doubt that it will ever be deemed illegal in the U.S. as long as the default mode meets the minimum standard for NHTSA for for the FMVSS standards rather for for headlight output. You should be fine. But yeah, I mean, the IHS already gives scores for optional headlights, standard headlights, variations, things like that. I think that's probably what we're going to have to see there. Um, but it, it is a weird concept to have a safety feature that theoretically in the past you would have paid for and you've always had versus something that that maybe you have to pay a subscription on. I will say that that a lot of these auto manufacturers subscription things that we've seen attempted overseas have either not made it to the US or they tried and then they decided that was a bad idea because people didn't like it. So what the future holds, we don't know yet. Um, and maybe I'm just more open to some of the subscription ideas than others. I'm not a big fan of the safety feature subscriptions, but just casual luxury, uh, convenience features. I'm kind of okay with that. Okay. Uh, well, I will say this. If you want to see this get apocalyptic, wait until Porsche option prices collide with subscription-based options. This is going to be the world's <laughs> most expensive yeah. seat, I guarantee you. I mean, it could be it could be an interesting twist like, uh, you know, okay, we have a subscription to the massaging seats on your Mercedes. And uh, we've got a package where the driver can use the massaging seat all the time. But the passenger, you can only use the massaging seat like twice a month. <laughs> this is going to create the ultimate like outlaw aftermarket because you can just imagine these things out of warranty. And now you've got some speed shop in California that promises to give you autonomy, heated seats, cruise control, and God knows what else by hacking your car. And that is that is kind of one of the one of the twists we see with Super Cruise and Blue Cruise, et cetera. It's it's this promise that, yes, you have to pay us monthly, but the feature is always getting better, which is not something we saw before. This is sort of the claim with connected nav systems. Previously, you bought your nav system. It came with the DVD. You put it in and you probably forgot about it. Some people. I remember doing this only on a very rare occasion. I did it with my Volvo. I actually yearly bought the map updates. It was expensive. Oh, wow. It was like 180 bucks a year to buy the new update DVD. At any rate, most people didn't though. So you'd have the old map data and sometimes there was an address it didn't have because it was too new or something changed and it wouldn't know about it. So this promise is that you pay Toyota or Lexus $10 a month, $5 a month, whatever it ends up being. And you always have the latest data because it's always being pulled down from the Google mapping database. So it's always current and everything's going to be there. Likewise, theoretically with Super Cruise, because it needs to have that that constant remapping of every road surface in America. So there is a cost to that for GM that they're passing on to you. you know, they have to go out and laser map every road every year. So um, that doesn't come free, especially when the intersections change. When there's construction, et cetera, they need to redo that. So that's that's part of the promise. It's a little bit different with heated seats or ventilated seats or a heated steering wheel where it's literally built in and the software for that is probably never going to change. Just the software to turn on and off the heated seat. But I'm kind of still okay with that, um, depending on the pricing and how they structure it. I guarantee you that the kind of outlaws who were like jailbreaking the original iPhone, remember when it first came out, you had to get AT&T. Mm -hmm. It was, you chose AT&T or you got a Blackberry. Yep. Well, I think those guys are gonna be unlocking and I've got a list right here of things <laughs> BMW is gonna make subscribable. Uh, remote start, mm -hmm. the BMW drive recorder, advanced high beams, 
seat heaters, I guarantee you there will be shops that used to like grind cams or maybe electronic shops that decide to get into the car industry. And those people who were jailbreaking AT&T, like iPhones and sending them to China for local plans, <laughs> those people will be modding your car in the next generation of shop. I guarantee yep. it. We have another topic of interest, and this one I got to admit I don't understand. Alex, I want to learn from you. Back when I was a kid, Kia was the cheap Korean car. Hyundai mm. was the somewhat more upscale Korean car. I don't know how they relate to each other now because it seems like all the stuff is great. The cars are similar. The prices seem similar. And in a world with Genesis, Hyundai isn't obviously the premium brand. Is this Pontiac and Chevrolet or Oldsmobile and Buick all over again? I don't see the difference between them. Yeah, this is a tricky one because the relationship between Hyundai and Kia is complicated, and that's probably the, where we should start. A lot of folks believe that Hyundai and Kia operate like Chevy and Buick, and that's not quite like that. The the best the better corollary might be something like a, a company that has an overseas division and maybe it's gm europe versus gm america hyundai owns almost all of kia there are tiny slivers here that are not actually owned by hyundai but basically they own them the connection between the two is weird though so in korea there's one headquarters and it's all one happy happy family presentations together but in the development cycles of the products, they're very separate. So the Hyundai Kia team, Hyundai team is here, Kia team is there. Um, there is a separate team that researches common platforms, engines, drivetrains, et cetera. Then each team then designs the vehicles from these common components. And then someone oversees all the design process for everything and makes sure that they don't look too alike. So Peter Schreier, uh, et cetera, the people up there at that, that level inside Hyundai and Kia, they're the ones that decide, nope, that's too similar to that. We don't like that. But also the other part that's unusual in this construct is the leadership of Hyundai Kia themselves, the Hyundai group. General Motors didn't like it when their divisions fought. Like in the GM era, Oldsmobile was always fighting with, 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 with Cadillac and with Chevy, like, oh, no, I don't want that. I want my own engine. You know, remember the North Star debate? Oh, we're going to have an engine that nobody can use. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, the Oldsmobile got it and everybody was upset because Oldsmobile used a North Star engine. That kind of thing is weird politics inside American car companies. But in the Korean car companies, it seems like the chairman delights in it. So they like it when the two companies fight because they think it makes a better product. So they actually encourage this intercompany competition because they think it creates something better. And I have to say, I think they're probably right on that. Um, as far as the separation and the brand positioning, generally speaking, Kia is the sporty one, sporty styling, sportier options. And Hyundai is the more mainstream brand. But then of course, Hyundai has N. So that's kind of weird there. But we're talking like like regular vehicles and levels of sportiness. So Forte is pretty darn cheap. We don't have the Forte N like we have the, the Elantra N, but we have the Forte GT line with lots of power, performance upgrades. It's styled differently. We have the Stinger. We have the EV6 GT, which is definitely um, a little bit uh, sportier styled and sleeker themed than the Ionic 5. So it, it's sort of like the two sides of a personality, you're still connected to the to the the main personality, but you can express yourself in different ways. 
Um, so if you're looking for a sharp delineation, there just isn't one. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where there was a time when Kia was not owned by Hyundai, mm -hmm. where Hyundai had about decades. It was a bad time. Sport. Yeah, they were bad. They sold those <laughs> things on dirt lots and they burned to the ground on a regular basis. But Hyundai did have about a decade's head start on Kia in the U.S. Mm -hmm. market. They came over in the 80s. They took their lumps. They brought over Korean market products that were wrong for the U.S. <laughs> the dealer base was slipshod. Kia came over in the 90s. Hyundai had moved up a little bit. Kia was now the butt of yep. all the jokes. But by the 2000s, there was both mutual business interest as they'd been joined together by acquisition, but also there was this sense that Kia was a more entry-level product, that Kia was basically Chevrolet, and Hyundai was maybe Oldsmobile, either Pontiac or Oldsmobile, one step above. We started seeing cars like the XG300, the XG350, and then the bizarre... Kia Amante confused us about which one of them was going to make the luxury <laughs> car. But eventually it did seem like Hyundai was going to take mm -hmm. up the reins. And in the early years, Genesis was a brand name within Hyundai before it became yes. its own separate standalone luxury brand. So it's almost as that oh, Hyundai relinquished its opportunity to become the premium side of the equation. And while it's great that they get to split platforms, mm -hmm. I think trying to identify Kia as performance and Hyundai as mainstream, I guess, entry-level luxury, it seems as indistinct to me as like Pontiac and Chevrolet during the oh, 90s. Yeah, this Chevrolet. is definitely a Pontiac-Chevy thing. Yeah. Only Pontiac-Chevy as if they had both received equal treatment and decent products. And, you know, yeah, I think the, the, the trouble is, I think that in America, we have never seen a car manufacturer do this before. Plymouth Dodge, Basically the same thing. Only one of them survives now because they they didn't like it when they competed. They tried to create artificial differences between the brands. And if the two brands wanted to target the same customer, they did not get to. They were told, no, we cannot do that because you're targeting the same demographic. This one has to be this person. That one has to be that person. And it seems that at the Hyundai Key Group, they're like, oh, you're looking for a mid-something 40-year-old person, the $75,000 uh, annual salary that owns a condo. Yeah. Target them. Do it. Let's see you go. Who wins? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's the kind of that that is the way like GM divisions competed with each other during the 50s and 60s. Yeah. The original Riviera, like the Buick Riviera design, existed initially as a Cadillac concept. Mm -hmm. And there was then a pitch when Cadillac decided not to build it. All the other GM divisions got to make their sales pitch to corporate for why they should get the Riviera yep. to become theirs. So it could have been an Oldsmobile, it could have been a Pontiac. It turned out that Buick made the best sales pitch. But in the modern era, it's it's odd to think that the successor to like the GM internal brand or the Mopar internal brand or the Ford internal brand rivalry is two companies from Korea. Yeah, it is interesting. Another weird and interesting twist. In the United States, these companies are 100% separate. So in Korea, they are combined and they have common development, common research and development facilities. The headquarters are very close to one another for the two companies, even though they technically sort of have two separate headquarters, but very much a conjoined thing. You go there for a Kia event, you get a Hyundai Kia presentation. That's the Hyundai Kia this, the Hyundai Kia that, the Hyundai Kia that. Everything is like we're one big happy family. In the U.S., absolutely separate. Um, they have separate marketing agencies, separate PR companies. 100% of the employees are separate. They're separate IRS corporations. They pay taxes separately, etc. There is not a thing shared between the two companies. They don't use the same fleet management companies for interactions with the press. Like when I am interacting with Hyundai and with Kia, 
zero, zero conjoining. Absolutely nothing is shared. Um, even even the people that 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 work with us to get fleet cars delivered for us to review, totally separate people. They do not know. They do not know what's going on on the other side. Um, very very unusual in that respect, which is part of why it is peculiar. Because on this end, Hyundai and Kia don't know what what their marketing spots are going to be for American TV. They're cooked up here. The American side does this for TV. The other side does that for TV, and it's a very strange concept. And their dealer networks obviously are 100% separate as well. I think this will eventually come to a head because up to this point, it's been a rising tide lifting all boats. The Korean products have been so good that they've stolen market share from Japanese companies, American companies, and some European companies. Eventually, the U.S. market is not growing astronomically. I think the maximum mm-hmm. theoretical U.S. auto market would be somewhere around 17 and a half million cars. Mm-hmm. We've seen it, but even in a best-case scenario, we're not going to see a much larger market than that. At some well, America, point, if, if America continues to grow, I mean, America's auto market's grown with the population. So yeah, it's, it's maybe there. a little bit, yeah. maybe a little bit, but for for a long time, 16 mm-hmm. to 17 million. Yeah, that's pretty much the max. Yeah, at some point. Hyundai and Kia will start cannibalizing each other. If they don't really explain how mm-hmm. they serve different people at different prices or different market segments. I, oh, I think, I think they definitely do. But I think that's okay because the argument there would be if if Kia is stealing Hyundai sales, then Hyundai needs to fix the problem and vice versa. So uh, Telluride and Palisade is a good example, I think. This is one of the few products where these two two groups have created a new thing very similar in terms of their understructure, et cetera. And Hyundai is the one that sells poorly, quote unquote, versus the Kia. Because Telluride was a runaway astronomical success. People loved the styling, absolutely could not get enough of them. Kia could not build enough in the fact, Kia can still not build enough Tellurides in the factory. Um, And Palisade needed a redesign because they realized that it was not quite what people were interested in. So you notice, you know, Palisade got an emergency refresh of sorts with significant changes pretty soon. Telluride got a refresh with the most minor of changes visually, but tech upgrades. So the, the Telluride refresh was because they wanted to add more features to make them even more expensive, to expand the portfolio of people that were interested in a Telluride because they wanted bigger screens or this or that, but they didn't want to change the formula. The Palisade, it was a, whoops, the nose looks weird, so we need to fix the nose. And it is interesting because the Telluride was just a styling home run. They managed Mm -hmm. to build a crossover that had some of the square-jawed ruggedness of like an old-school body-on-frame SUV from the 90s, like like an old Explorer, and it really did look like a wild open range kind of all road vehicle. Whereas the Palisade, it's not just that it was anonymous, it was offensively weird to a lot of people. Yeah, I wasn't the biggest fan of the front. But I mean, honestly, styling is what separates them. And that's that's the the easy answer and the hard answer at the same time is that, you know, if you like if you like what a forte or an Elantra will give you and you like the look of one over the other, then that's the answer. You know, if you like the Palisade or the Telluride, there we go. There are a few vehicles that only one manufacturer will have. Hyundai is really trying super hard to not let Kia have a truck. Who knows? They probably will have one at soon, at some point soon. Um, 
Kia is the one with the American market minivan because Hyundai has the European market minivan, which was deemed not appropriate for America.、Um, and the designs and theory of operation is definitely different in those two markets.、So、that's why they chose to split it that way.、Uh, on the EV side, the Hyundai is the pragmatic square one. The EV6 is the sleek, sexy one that has better range because it's much more aerodynamic, but has a much tighter interior. And the EV6 is going to be the first one to get the bonkers nearly 600 horsepower EV system. Yeah, that、um, is huge. I love which、that. is going to be interesting.、Uh, the EV9 is going to be first to market. It appears with a three-row unit. So later we're going to find a three-row Hyundai Ioniq something,、uh, but the EV9 will be the first three-row EV thing in the U.S. So it, it, this is kind of a weird thing, and it, there hasn't been any rumor that Kia will get the EV6. So Hyundai is going to have a longer-range EV sedan thing, and it doesn't appear that Kia is going to get one of those. Um, for instance, like Hyundai's got the Venue. There's no Kia Venue corollary in the U.S., so there is some product differentiation this way. But by by and large, 90% of their volume, the core, is styling. That's all that separates them. You see, I think the platonic ideal. If you could get away with it, if you could press reset, every company would love to be Toyota with two brands. They've got Toyota. They've got Lexus. And instead of having like a Mercury between Ford and Lincoln, you just have an Avalon, a vehicle that's、mm. like in the upper reaches of the Toyota lineup or in the lower reaches of the Lexus lineup. Like, but here's here's an interesting counterpoint though, and I think the Koreans might agree on this. Okay. If if Hyundai did that, and it was just Hyundai and Genesis, would they be Toyota? Because I don't think Hyundai wants to be Toyota. Hyundai wants to be better than Toyota is the the key component here. Hyundai is is. Has rightly been praised for really raising the bar quite rapidly for themselves. So when you look at how far Hyundai and Kia have come over the last 20 years, they went from truly atrocious vehicles, where where Hyundai wasn't even designing their own engines in the 1990s. They they co-designed engines with other companies, or they licensed engines. They were licensing、uh, from Mitsubishi and a bunch of other companies. Then they co-developed an engine with Chrysler and Mitsubishi. That's the engine that we found under the hood of practically every Hyundai vehicle in the early 2000s. Then they developed their very first engine lineup, and they're only developing their second engine ever. Now, the, the family. So, like the the new 2.5 liter turbo, 3.5 liter turbo, the new 1.6 liter turbos, and their smaller vehicles, and those that engine families that we're finding in the 2022 and 2023 Kias and Hyundais. That's only the second engine family they have ever developed in their entire history. So we have to keep that in perspective. But they have managed to go from reliability that would make Alfa Romeo blush to reliability that concerns Lexus. You know, I I still I, I'm gonna be just recalcitrant on this. I think they've got enough ideas for like two and a half different brands in the U.S.、Mm-hmm. market, but I'm I'm willing to be proven wrong. But、uh, if you but that, that's a, the competition. I think is the key. This is like so if if Toyota was able to create two Camrys, okay, and then customers gravitated more towards one Camry than the other, then as a unit they could make better Camrys. Make sense? So、yeah. if you If you could pull two ideas out of the bin and you go, oh, do I go for A or B? Oh, this one worked. Let's do more of that. That one didn't work. Throw that one away. And you're still winning as long as you sell more of it, regardless of who sells. And you can keep improving. With with this is a key thing too. With data that you don't have to try and acquire surreptitiously in a way. Like if you have Hyundai and Kia competing, 
Obviously, the headquarters, the top line headquarters in Korea, has all the data they would ever need to know what's going on, right? They can they have all the detailed demographic data, the financial data for the customers that are buying these things at their fingertips, and you can see which one's doing what, and you can try and continue sharpening your sword. Oh, and I forgot, Toyota really does have three brands. They've got they've got Lexus for luxury, they've got Toyota for boring people, and then they've got <laughs> Subaru for people who eat lentils. Oh, but they only have 20% Subaru, so there you go. That's true. They also have they also have GR, which they're considering a sub-brand now. Supercars. Let's end on that note. Alex, do they have any relevance at all to normal people in the mainstream automotive world? Aside from styling direction, to be honest, no. Uh, you know, the, the Ferrari Testarossa is going to be the thing that you're going to have on your on your ball, but you're never going to buy one. Um, same thing goes for McLarens and pretty much everything that's over $200,000. There, there's a decent percentage of society in California, for instance, where in Silicon Valley, people are buying $100,000 things. But that next level up, that $200,000 price point where we find, you know, true supercars, true full luxury vehicles, Rolls Royces, Bentleys, etc. They're interesting for styling direction and where market trends might go. But yeah, nobody's going to buy them. You know, I'm inclined to agree with you just on the basis of the argument that's always made. Well, it's technology transfer. It's going to start on the supercar and work its way to the mainstream. It Sometimes. never does. Sometimes it does, but it Sometimes. almost never does. It's I true. Mean, yeah. The most notable example I can think of is that on the Ford GT back in the 2000s, they had a capless gas tank filler, and that mm. did find its way to production. So mm -hmm. there you go. $150,000 supercar, and now you have a capless filler on your escape. Carbon fiber started in supercars. It's it's working its way towards mainstream. Uh, aluminum did too. Aluminum construction did. Well, it started um, on, my, it started on yeah. my old D2 Audi A8. That's where mm -hmm. it started. Uh, there were there were other very low volume aluminum vehicles before. Um, but, you know, A8 at the time was was almost in that same sort of like, this is a halo car, this is where these things happen. I could include it in this, this you know, in a way. Uh, you know, engine development happens in Italian luxury performance brands then works their way down to Maserati and Alfa eventually. So uh, it's it's somewhat of a valid, a valid thing. Uh, Porsche might have used some of the technology from the 918 Spyder in something, maybe, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> You know, I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it at the beginning. Right when we started this topic, you mentioned the poster on the wall. Mm -hmm. I was that kid who had the poster of the Lamborghini Countach, which mm -hmm. I think was a pre-four valve, so it was probably slower than the C5 Corvette I own now. But that supercar was my gateway to the world of auto passion. <laughs> and I think for every magazine cover, I think for every poster in a kid's bedroom, I think for every supercar that goes roaring by the local high school as class is letting out, you create new auto enthusiasts and people who genuinely love cars and driving. Mm -hmm. And I think that ultimately is the big picture relevance of these things. I may never own them, but yeah. like that is my bridge. I think the problem was it never ended up selling more cars for their parent company, which is why all of those supercar brands are like the, the financial hot potato. They get passed around. Uh, because, you know, I, it seemed like a good idea to get it at the time. And now, ooh, that was a bad idea. I don't want to spend the money on that anymore. I'll get rid of it. And the Aston Martin's always being kicked around. Um, there's, there's going to be a point in time where Porsche is theoretically spun off Volkswagen, maybe, in an IPO. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Audi ends up kicking things to the curb here. And there are sort of the, the sort of the, yeah, the Volkswagen group kicks things to the curb here and there. Um, you take Bugatti. 
yeah, there's going to be a point where it just doesn't make financial sense anymore. Um, but they are, I mean, they're interesting to the general automotive enthusiast community, but it doesn't make them sell any more ID4s. It doesn't make oh, Volkswagen sell any Audis even. I don't think Dodge sold one more Dakota for 20 years of making mm -hmm. Vipers. So I would agree. But, but oddly enough, I would argue that the R8, which is a supercar, I would argue as well. Yeah. R8 has, I would say, probably has helped the brand because it's in the brand. Having a Bugatti round does not help you sell Volkswagens. Having an R8 as an Audi helps you sell other Audis. Well, it doesn't help you sell TTs, unfortunately. No, but, but halo cars are a tricky thing too, because halo cars done right seem to be okay. Halo cars that are very inaccessible don't seem to help. So Corvette seems to help. Um, Charger, Challenger, Hellcat seems to help, but Viper did not. R8 seems to help because it's expensive, but it's cheap for a supercar and closer to the other Audis in pricing. So that seems to kind of work. I don't think R8 would have worked if it had been a Volkswagen, for instance. I do agree with you. I think it's it's maybe pushing things to call a Hellcat a supercar just because it's it's definitely a super Oh, not a supercar. It's a halo car. A halo so, car. It's a different that's, thing. Yeah. Halo car. Halo car is a different construct. They sell a lot of V6 chargers and V8 chargers mm -hmm. because of the Hellcats. That's definitely yes. that works. Right. And they sell Camaros and things like that because the Corvette's cool and you want a piece of that. So you'll buy the next best thing. And it helps in the brand if there is that next best thing, if it, there's a, some some level to get there. Uh, you know, it, it, back in Viper era, you had Viper and then you had a Neon. And you're just like, what? there's nothing in between. That This is, I go for this and then there, there is nothing attainable in this structure. Just like I would argue that Ford GT was not the biggest use to Ford. They do it out of pride, et cetera. And that was Be a bad era for Ford. Like yeah. coming out of the, like that, that car, I think they made the last one in 2005. The reason Ford didn't go bankrupt during mm -hmm. the financial crisis was because it had its own financial crisis when loans were still available yeah. two years before. They went south first and perversely, mm -hmm. that actually kept them out of bankruptcy. Yeah. But I think having that, the halo car thing seems to work better than that overt supercar. Whether that whether your halo car is a supercar or not, it works for the brand. Arguably, halo cars work for Mercedes as well. We have the GT, we have the G, the G Wagon, which is a halo car for Mercedes. Those work well for them. I mean, that's the entire reason that the M line exists at BMW is to get people into the dealer to buy an, an M340i. Uh, well, it's the entire reason M performance exists too, is to try and give you a tiny piece of the pie. But it's like, you know, you come in for the M3 and you go out with something that you can actually afford. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I, I can see that as halo car, a halo car done right. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, it's a universal truth that a million and one people have walked into a BMW dealer thinking about an M3 or an M4 and driven out with some sort yep. of a three series powered by a four or six cylinder engine, yep. not a straight six. Um, but uh, no, it could have been the straight six. They had some rather subtle ones. Uh, okay, guys, in the chat box below this video, let me know, do you think supercars have any broader relevance? And uh, what do you think has <laughs> been the most effective halo car? Oh, that's a good topic for another 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 episode. You're we'll, Alex, we'll have to We'll have to research that. Where can they find us online? You can find us at uh, EV Buyer's Guide, Auto Buyer's Guide, and Alex and Autos and all your favorite social platforms, and of course, YouTube. And uh, if you're checking out the video version or the audio version of this podcast, uh, go ahead and check out the other version. Uh, you might be surprised. Smoke them if you've got them. Au revoir. See y'all later.